Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue, and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. We are privileged to have as our guest someone who is no stranger to MTSU. Dr. Anthony J. Badger is the author of Albert Gore Sr., A Political Life, a thoroughly researched volume on the late U.S. Senator from Tennessee and father of former Vice President Al Gore. I met and interviewed Tony when he first started researching this book at the Albert Gore Research Center back when it was in the Learning Resources Center. It has been a years-long labor of love for the Emeritus Paul Mellon Professor of American History at Cambridge University, now Professor in American History at Northumbria University. The legacy of Albert Gore Sr., MTSU graduate, class of 1932, after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. The River as Song, a music dialogue between songwriters from the USA and China, is slated for Thursday, October 24th at 8 p.m. at the Hutton Hotel on West End in Nashville. Two-time Grammy Award winner Jim Lauderdale will join forces with Su Yang, a multiple national award winner from China. Lauderdale's work has been recorded by George Strait, George Jones, Solomon Burke, Patti Loveless, Elvis Costello, Vince Gill, the Dixie Chicks, and many other artists. His music spans bluegrass, country, rock, blues, soul, and folk, and he's also a frequent host and performer on Music City Roots, the live radio and public TV series broadcast on its flagship station, MTSU's WMOT-FM, Roots Radio, 89.5. Yang's music encompasses Chinese folk tunes and Western rock music. His influences are rooted in the tradition of the Northwest China Territory upstream from the Yellow River. This concert, which is co-presented with the MTSU Center for Popular Music, will be Yang's first Nashville appearance. This event is free and open to the public. For more information, contact the Center for Chinese Music and Culture at 615-904-8121. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Tony, welcome back. It's been a long time. (laughs) And it's a great pleasure to come back to Tennessee. I've had extremely enjoyable times from the time I first met the senator in 1990. Of all the influential Southern politicians of his era, Richard Russell, Eugene Talmadge, Russell Long, and so many others, good and bad. Why this man, Albert Gore Sr., for his own individual biography? Partly because he epitomized uh, what Franklin Roosevelt had once said about there being a new generation of Southerners uh, on the horizon who were going to be very different from the conservative Southerners uh, who sometimes stymied reform in the 20th century. Partly also because his career spanned the transformation of the American South. When he first came to office, it was a one-party democratic system uh, that was based on African-American disfranchisement, on segregation, on the malapportionment, over-representation of uh, rural areas in the state legislature, and, and of course, a, a, a one-party system. By the time he left office, uh, segregation had collapsed, uh, African-Americans were voting, and uh, Tennessee was genuinely a two-party state. And I was always fascinated to know how much Gore contributed to that, uh, which I thought was probably going to be quite a lot, and also to show you know, how he interacted with those changes over a very long political career. 
He saw the Great Depression. He saw World War II. He saw Vietnam. He saw civil rights. Uh, his lifespan mirrored really cataclysmic changes in the United States in the 20th century. Very much so. And here we have a man growing up in the hill country of uh, uh, Tennessee. There's an amazing generation of American politicians born in the sort of 1890 to 1910 period um, who grew up in essentially what was the horse and buggy age in America. And yet they presided over uh, a country that became an international superpower, became the leading economy in the world, became um, you know, a center of, of space travel and engineering, uh, and uh, became a nuclear power. All of these things Albert Gore was involved with. Uh, but it, 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 was, it always struck me as, as remarkable that, this, as I said, this particular generation of politicians uh, masterminded, as it were, this transformation of America. Uh, and it, it, it's, an, it's a feat of imagination, really, to think of, of the, of the uh, isolated hill country that, that, that they grew up in. To what extent was Gore Sr. a political pragmatist, and to what extent was he a political iconoclast? Pauline Gore would say, his wife, who was a, a, was a, a very impressive politician in her own right and a very impressive professional lawyer in her own right, um, Pauline Gore would say that she was a pragmatist and that Albert was entirely too idealistic and liked to butt his head against a brick wall, whereas she was much more concerned about getting, getting things done. Um, and of course, there's, there's, there's an element of truth in that. Um, but Gore uh, was someone who worked effectively in the Senate, worked effectively across party lines, uh, was very interested in policy. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he, he expected to get results. Uh, and of course, at various times that meant, meant compromise. At the same time, um, he had a streak of stubbornness. Some called it arrogance. Uh, and he would, could be something of a loner in the Senate. Uh, you could never be entirely certain how he was going to vote on a particular issue. Uh, you couldn't control him. And that's what his great, the great nemesis of his career, Lyndon Johnson, um, with whom he had a sort of love-hate relationship. Uh, that's what Johnson, uh, not said didn't like, but realized about Gore is that he could not control Gore. That must have driven Lyndon crazy because Lyndon was the great arm twister of yeah. all time. Yes, very much so. And they were so similar. They came from the same backgrounds uh, in, in the hill country of their respective states. They'd both been to colleges like MTSU, which were in those days was a teacher training college. Uh, they both had uh, both from poor backgrounds. They both had to work their way through college, come to college, go back home, earn a bit more money, come back to college again. Um, and they were both ardent New Dealers. And they both had the same vision for the South. That is, uh, the South was going to change uh, economically, and it could be it could change as a result of federal investment. And, 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 TVA was the most obvious example in the in in Tennessee, but um, the the infrastructure investment by the federal government was what could transform the poorest region in the country, uh, and in the process, both believed that race relations would gradually change, um, and uh, so they had this they they had, they really had the same sorts of politics, the same sort of agenda. And yet they hated each other. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. 
Wise nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte Gross, Wise Advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle Tennessee Writing Project is a program that fosters the effective teaching of writing to students in kindergarten through high school. The project hosts annual summer institutes where teacher participants teach and learn from each other effective techniques of teaching writing. In addition, the project sponsors summer writers camps for youngsters. MTSU is one of 185 sites of the National Writing Project and one of only two in Tennessee. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Dr. Tony Badger is our guest, author of Albert Gore Sr., A Political Life. Was there something inherent in Gore's upbringing, you alluded to it partially earlier, that enabled him to be politically flexible when he felt he had to be and a person of conscience when he felt he had to be? He had very good mentors in Smith County, um, notably Judge Clint Beasley, uh, who was the county judge uh, and responsible, sort of in a sense, controlled Smith County politics for a generation. And Beasley was unusual because he, you, uh, someone who interviewed him in the late 1940s, uh, said they were expecting some classically uh, rather rundown conservative, standard conservative uh, county seat sort of politico. And um, it turned out that uh, Beasley, for instance, was a supporter of Henry Wallace, the uh, progressive candidate for go- uh, president in 1948. Um, he, he believed the South had been wrong on the Civil War, been on, been on the wrong, it had got it wrong then. These are unusual views for a sort of good old boy politician. So I think Gore had that. He had a father who was very, um, uh, fairly stern. Um, he had uh, the discipline of having grown up on the farm and constantly having to go back and, and, and continue uh, to farm. Um, and he had a, uh, he, he wasn't religious, really, but he had a, a, a fairly clear moral code, which he got from his schooling and his church uh, as, a, as a young man. So that gave him the, the principles. Um, and then, you know, anybody who was, anybody who was a, an aspiring young politician in the night, and he was ambitious. Uh, not many people from Smith County went to uh, university, uh, and uh, uh, certainly not many people, you know, ma- made it into you know major statewide and national political office. What kind of a campaigner was he? Because in order to uh, be involved with the issues he was involved mm-hmm. in in Congress, he had to be something of a policy wonk. Although that's uh, in some people's eyes, that's sort of a bad. Uh, nickname or title these days. But at the same time, when he came back home to the home folks, he had to show that he hadn't gotten above his raising, as the expression goes. Mm. So how was he on the stump? Uh, he was a fantastic stump speaker. He wasn't originally. I think by, by all accounts, he was fairly stilted. and uh, He was a very vigorous campaigner. And, and uh, in the politics of 1938, when he ran for an open seat in Congress against six or seven other candidates, all of whom probably had more name recognition than he did, and more established local political contacts. Uh, he had to make a name for himself, and, and he did that by absolutely relentless campaigning, covering a, a very large district, uh, you know, relentlessly every day, six or seven meetings a day, 
um, you know, drawing good crowds, and then and, and then realizing that to, to really draw a crowd, you had to have something more than just your speaking ability. And so that's when he started to get out his fiddle and play with uh, play his fiddle with uh, some other you know friends, country music friends. That was how he he started, and, and uh, until. He ran for the Senate in 1952. He didn't really have very much opposition in his, in his, uh, back in his uh, constituency. Um, later on, uh, he always campaigned vigorously when he did campaign. He didn't necessarily maintain a, a strong political organization between campaigns, and he was often late starting campaigns. But particularly in 1952, when he challenged the incumbent senator, elderly uh, senator, extraordinarily powerful senator, Kenneth McKellar, um, uh, he from that campaign onwards, he he ran these ferocious personal campaigns uh, in terms of uh, punishing schedules, uh, of of going all over the place talking, and that's when he became a great stump speaker. Um, and Tom Wicker of the New York Times said he was the best stump speaker in the United States. Um, Winfield Dunn, when he ran for governor in 1970 on the Republican ticket remembers hearing Gore on the hustings and saying he hadn't heard anything like that. And it was like uh, like the old-time speeches in Mississippi. And uh, Dale Bumpers told me, the senator from Arkansas, that in, after Gore had retired, he he um, he was on a program where Gore was the introductory speaker and Bumpers was meant to follow him. And he said, uh, you know, Bumpers prided himself on being a very good speaker. <laughs> but he said he felt completely inadequate after, uh, after Gore had spoken. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned Pauline, and uh, she has been said to have been an even more astute politician than Albert was. Uh, to what what role would you say that she played in his political success? Well, Al, Al Gore talks about uh, the privilege of being in Washington, growing up in Washington, and every morning going down to, to listen uh, over breakfast to two of the most astute politicians in Washington discussing you know, the day's politics. And Pauline was certainly uh, more than a match for Albert in, in that regard. Um, and she, she was arguably more of a natural politician in terms of uh, the, the follow-up, in terms of knowing people's names and um, making sure that you did all the right small gestures and, and things like that. Was she the guy standing behind him whispering in his ear, now, you don't forget to talk to Martha or don't forget to talk to, you know, this is Joe from What's-Its-Face? John Siegenthaler always said that the, he thought that um, Bill Allen and, and Pauline would work the room, really, and make sure that Albert was going to talk to the right people. Mm -hmm. Now, Albert was very uh, 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 clubbable in that sense. I mean, he had easy, easy relationships when he went, you know, was working a room or uh, on on the on the stump. But he he was more of a a didact. Uh, he 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 talked at people rather rather more than he listened to them. The Southern Manifesto. Gore was one of only three U.S. senators to refuse to sign this anti-integration statement. The other two were Tennessee's other senator, Estes Kefauver and Lyndon Johnson of Texas. What was Gore Sr.'s thought process as he considered this decision? I mean, he was not, uh, he, he used to say that he had been up front on the race issue, but actually most Tennessee voters would not have, uh, would, would, didn't really know very much about what Gore thought on, 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 on 
race relations. And, and on the Brown decision, uh, he upheld the Brown decision, the desegregation decision. But he, he had said it could all be sorted out at the local level, which is a bit of a... Kind uh, of a hedge. Yeah. yeah. But he regarded the, uh, the actual manifesto as being constitutional nonsense. Yes. Um, but in all fairness, in the 1950s, how upfront could a Southern politician be on the subject of race and expect to survive? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, Kefauver, they people knew where Kefauver stood. He'd run for national office and they knew that he, he was, uh, by Southern standards, clearly a moderate on civil rights. I don't think Albert Gore wanted to see the end, particularly... To, to see the dramatic end of segregation. He expected that, like most Southern liberals of his generation, he expected that economic change would gradually bring about the end of segregation. And it was very publicly shown to be uh, a dissenter on the manifesto because Strom Thurmond, um, who drafted the manifesto, presented a copy to him on the Senate floor, jabbed him in the chest and asked him to sign it. And, and the press had been primed. And so the press were up in the gallery watching this as when Gore said, hell no. Gore did catch some flack for not signing it. Yeah. And, in, uh, and for not signing it and for also voting for uh, the compromise that Johnson engineered in 1957, which is the first civil rights act to pass Congress since Reconstruction, um, which, which Gore sold to his constituents is essentially a voting rights bill. And one of the things that I think I became more convinced about as I was working on the project was that the 1958 campaign, in which he's opposed by former Governor Prentice Cooper, whose son has just been elected mayor of Nashville, very much opposed him on the issue. Of the, and that was a bitter campaign uh, and Gore faced very hostile audiences in West Tennessee, but he faced them. And Jack Robinson said, you know, basically Gore stood up and said, uh, I'm in favor of the right to vote. Uh, African-Americans gave their lives in World War II. You should be in favor of the right to vote. And uh, on the whole, he seems to have won over his audiences. Time for another break. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of FIRE. For more details, visit mtsunews.com. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Dr. Tony Badger is our guest. He's returned to MTSU, where he did a great deal of research for the new book, Albert Gore Sr., A Political Life. Gore's stand on the Vietnam War was a political, um, it was a pivotal moment in his political legacy. How did he come to turn against the war, and what analysis did he factor into making this decision? Back in 1954, um, when the French were being defeated, finally defeated in, in Vietnam. Uh, the siege of Dien Bien Phu, there was considerable pressure and some support in the Eisenhower administration for a military intervention to rescue the French. Uh, and Lyndon Johnson got some of his senior people together uh, and uh, Gore got his staff to work on 
um, the, the material to, to say that you know the United States shouldn't get involved to bail out a colonial power. Uh, and and they were in, they were the Dem the leading Democrats were import an important factor in Eisenhower not taking military action in 1954. Um, Gore was a, a committed cold warrior. Um, he was a supporter of global global containment, but uh, he went to Vietnam in 1959 on behalf of the Foreign Relations Committee, primarily to look at the administration of aid in Vietnam. Uh, and he came away convinced that this was not a that it, to the, that the regime was unpopular, was getting more authoritarian and more unpopular, uh, and that any American involvement would be counterproductive. Um, if they got involved militarily, it was a war they couldn't win. Nothing led him to change. Nothing made him change that view. Um, and uh, he he was un unusual in being such an early doubter on the Vietnam War, uh, and that was partly expressed in the uh, in private hearings of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but also he went to see Kennedy in the summer of, 18, uh, in the summer of 1963 and told Kennedy that he should get out. Um, and uh, Gore was more, I mean, Gore was more far-sighted on Vietnam than either, for example, Mike Mansfield, who was something of an expert on Southeast Asia and became a became a dove on the war? A Democratic uh, senator from Montana, yeah. a majority, and majority leader, 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 yes, yeah. and 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 more uh, and, and more uh, far sighted than than William Fulbright, um, who was very outspoken. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the end, Fulbright and, and Gore very much worked in lockstep on okay. the on the Foreign Relations Committee. Fulbright was sort of uh, uh, Bill Clinton's mentor. Yes, yes, and, 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 and Johnson. Uh, you know, regarded Fulbright with not only with great affection, but also, you know, Fulbright for Johnson was his intellectual sort of, uh, uh, not guru exactly, but I mean, he was he was the person who gave intellectual weight to the Johnson administration. But the intervention in the Dominican Republic was first what really started to alarm Fulbright, and he thought he'd been lied to by the administration. And it was only then that he really started to, to come out. You know, David Halberstam was reporting on the uh, the war in this sort of skeptical way um, in in the early 60s for the New York Times. And we know that McNamara, um, and McNamara told me uh, that, you know, they he, he thought he didn't really um, pay attention to, I mean, he didn't believe Harvestam. And Kennedy didn't believe Harvestam. Well, Gore knew Halberstam, <laughs> the former journalist for Tennessean. Yes. So Halberstam was someone that the, the uh, Gores always had a friendly interest in. Um, and uh, I think the, the Gores basically believed what Halberstam was saying. I can remember as a child, my father seeing full page ads in the Nashville newspapers in 1970. Yes, Nashville actually did have two competing newspapers at one time, children, uh, that read Albert Gore has voted against school prayer three times and getting really steamed at Republican Bill Brock, the opponent for running those ads. What's the real story of Gore and his stand on Senator Everett Dirksen's proposed constitutional amendment on school prayer? Um, it's quite simple, uh, really. Uh, it, it was an issue that coming out of left field for, for Gore. I mean, Gore was uh, a, a, a Southern Baptist. He was a believer in separation of church and state. Um, he didn't really, when the Supreme Court decision came down in, in, in 62, 3, uh, he didn't really have a, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a deluge of, 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 of complaint. 
in, from his constituents about it. Um, and he just thought that uh, this was a, you know, there was a non-issue. Uh, and, uh, of course, the Brock, Brock campaign kept it back as an issue till right near the end. Um, they ran the, uh, they campaigned on all the other issues. Uh, so this was sort of an October surprise, yes. if you will? Yeah. He was surprised by the ferocity of the campaign that Brock at that point um, launched. Um, and, and it was at odds with everything he believed about the role of religion in national politics. He and Pauline would both have vividly remembered the anti-Catholicism of the 1928 campaign against Al Smith. They also were very aware of the fact that in 1960, um, the anti-Catholicism, or according to all the polls, played a bigger role in Tennessee voters against Kennedy uh, than in any other state. Because certain voters thought or were worried that Kennedy, who was a Roman Catholic, would take his instructions on how to govern the country from the Pope. Yeah. When you juxtapose the political climate in which Albert Gore Sr. operated with the political climate of today, especially in the South, could an Albert Gore Sr. survive as a public servant in this atmosphere? It's tempting to say no, and it's tempting to say that when you have a lily white Republican Party, and when you see the anti-government stance, I mean, in 1963, 75% of Americans believed the federal government on the whole could be relied on to do the right thing. And in the fact, figure sometimes now is as low as 10%. Um, and that's a very different world from the world that Albert Gore was involved in. I mean, Gore was a fierce partisan. To any uh, senators of that generation knew that to get anything through the Senate, you had to work across the aisles. They they avoided the, the hot button issues, as one uh, as Dale Bumper said to me. You know, uh, the politicians getting involved in hot button issues on which actually Congress probably isn't going to have any say. Abortion, for mm -hmm. example, right? They, they, uh, on which the purpose is really to get, just make sure your opponents on the other side and it's shown in the negative light. Mm -hmm. And the whole whole aspect of negative campaigning. The whole aspect of uh, the the scale of money in politics—all of these would have been would have been difficult for a politician like uh, Albert Gore to, to to deal with. But I'm sure he would have made every effort. And uh, yeah, after all, you know, Tennessee produced after him produced Jim Sasser, and 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 it produced Al, um, Bob Clement, uh, and Bob Clement. And uh, there there there's a sort of uh, you know there's a strong tradition there. Um, and it's and it's Republican leaders on the whole whole in the Senate have I mean if you look at Lamar Baker Alexander Frist and even Bob Corker uh, have been within you know have been much more moderate than the existing national leadership of the Republican Party. More on the Richard Luger Bob Dole scale yes. of Republican moderation. Yes, the book is called Albert Gore Senior: A Political Life. We are out of time. We're very grateful to you, Tony, for uh, chronicling this very important man in this very important period of American history. Dr. Anthony J. Badger, thanks for being our guest. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. The Tennessee Civil War National Heritage Area is managed by MTSU Center for Historic Preservation. A partnership unit of the National Park Service, the Heritage Area tells the whole story of America's greatest challenge – offering assistance with Civil War and Reconstruction-era programs. Our projects include historic driving tours, museum exhibits, and nominations to the National Register of Historic Places. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. 
The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. Jimmy Hart has the middle moment. A highlight of MTSU's 2019 Constitution Day was an outstanding women's suffrage panel inside Tucker Theater. The topic was the passage of the 19th Amendment almost 100 years ago and the challenges at the ballot box even today. Here's State Representative London Lamar of Memphis, the youngest lawmaker in the state and a strong advocate of voting rights. I think that it's important to continue the conversation around voting and ensuring that we're uh, continuing to protect our democracy and that not only women, but all demographics of people have equal chance of voting, to have access to voting, are able to take part in that process and truly educate and understand that process. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU On The Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.